You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So what is at stake in Paul's letter to the Galatians is the good news. And not simply the good news, but the best news. The most important news in all of the world. And that news is that Jesus has done everything necessary to deliver us from our sin, to deliver us from judgment, to deliver us from death. He's done everything necessary to rewrite our lives and our destinies forever. In Christ, rebellious sinners like us have been invited Invited into communion with the God by whom and for whom we are made. The good news is that this new life is all of grace. No matter what you've thought, no matter what you've done, no matter how wretched or wicked you feel this morning, this message is for you. For anyone who will simply receive it by trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus, salvation, forgiveness, righteousness is yours as a gift. You don't have to earn it. Paul tells the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the best news in all the world. This is the good news of the gospel. And every week, as your pastors, we want to make the good news of rescue in Christ Jesus clear in our preaching. We want you to be presented with the problem of our lostness and the remedy of our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We want you to see the realness of Jesus. We want to point you to His moral beauty. We want you to find strength in His perfect righteousness. We want you to delight in His redeeming love. We want you to be strengthened to experience the outpouring of His Spirit. We want you to know His promise that He will never leave you or forsake you. We want you to hear the good news of Jesus. Because this is the best news in all of the world. And it is this gospel that the Galatians are in danger of leaving for something else. Perhaps then we can understand Paul's astonishment in the passage that Jonathan just read. Paul's aim in this letter to the Galatians, and especially in our text this morning, is to remind the believers and the churches of Galatia that there is no other good news. There is no other gospel. And so let's pray and ask for God's help as we dive in. We confess this morning, Lord Jesus, that there is no salvation in anyone else because there's no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. 
And so come now, by your spirit we ask. Help us see the good news that is ours in you. Father, give us more of Jesus, we ask, for his good, for our good, and for his glory, because we ask in his matchless name. Amen. So sometimes it helps us to have some things, some, a structure to hang, hang things on. So if you're the kind of person who takes notes or likes that sort of thing, here are four words I want you to listen for. We're going to talk about danger. We're going to talk about troublers. We're going to see the anti-gospel. And then we're going to see, or maybe hear, a thunderbolt. Danger, troublers, anti-gospel, and thunderbolt. So let's first look at Paul's warning of danger in verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Or it might be uh, slightly closer to say, I am dumbstruck that you are so quickly leaving the one who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're doing so for another gospel? So Luke tells us in Acts 14 that Paul and Barnabas traveled through the towns of Iconium, of Lystra, of Antioch, and Derbe. All of these are towns in southern Galatia, and they preached the gospel from synagogue to synagogue. And despite severe opposition, from especially from the Jews, many men and women heard and believed the gospel, often at great cost. Luke writes that Paul and Barnabas went from city to city, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. But it seems that after Paul and Barnabas left, the Jewish zealots who opposed him at Lystra returned to these newly planted churches in Galatia, and they assaulted the gospel message and these new believers. Despite Paul's warning that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God, the Galatian believers seem to be waffling And notice here in chapter 1, verse 6, who Paul says they are in danger of deserting. While it was Paul and Barnabas who boldly preached the gospel to the Galatians, it was God who called them. It was God who called them in the grace of Christ. It was God who softened their hearts under repentance and faith. It was God who sealed them with the promised Holy Spirit. The Galatians aren't in danger of defecting from Paul. That's not what he's concerned about. He's concerned that they're in danger of turning away from the gracious gift of God in the gospel. And so if we consider the preciousness of the gospel message and the dramatic nature in which these Galatian believers were saved, we can understand Paul's astonishment. He's deeply concerned that the Galatians are in danger of walking away from the best news in all the world. 
And so Paul wants them to see how surprising and how serious this could turn out to be. And he does so by hinting at another shocking defection that ought to warn them of danger. And this is a shocking defection that we're familiar with. Paul says in verse 6 that the Galatians are so quickly turning aside from the one who called them. Those are precisely the same words that God used to describe to Moses the defection of the Israelites in Exodus 32, verse 8. We spent a lot of time as a church together in Exodus, and hopefully you remember this moment, right? The people of Israel have witnessed Egypt's destruction by plague. They've carried away the wealth of Egypt. They've walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. They've been fed with manna from the clear blue sky. And yet, when Moses goes up on the mountain, they turn away from all that God has done from them by making a golden calf and sacrificing to it. God says, they have turned quickly aside of the way that I have commanded them, and they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. We're dumbstruck. How could this be so in light of all that God has accomplished for His people, Israel? Have they lost their minds? But what Paul is saying here in Galatians 1 verse 6 is that what should be even more astonishing is that the Galatians would turn away from the grace of Christ. The mystery of the gospel hidden for ages has now been revealed to them. Have they lost their minds? But as shocked as Paul is by the Galatians wandering, he does not respond in anger or in despondency. In fact, he says later on in the letter in chapter 3, they've been bewitched. They have been fooled. They have been, having been freed from the curse by listening to this anti-gospel, they have put themselves back underneath it. While they are quickly deserting, the verb tense that Paul uses here makes clear that they haven't abandoned the truth of the gospel, at least not yet. And so Paul's not addressing apostates. He's addressing wandering sheep. He's not shaming them. He's not manipulating them. But as a gentle shepherd, the gentle shepherd that he knows, as a gentle shepherd, he is warning them of danger and calling them back to their senses. I love how Martin Luther captures this. Paul could have treated the Galatians with less courtesy and denounced them more roughly, something like this, a plague on your apostasy. I'm ashamed of you. Your ingratitude wounds me. I am angry with you. Or he could have exclaimed against them tragically, oh, what an age. What habits. But since it is his aim to raise up the fallen, and with fatherly care to recall them from error to the gospel, 
he refrains from these harsh words, especially at the beginning, and addresses them with great gentleness and mildness. Seeking as he was to heal the wounded, it would not have been right for him to make their wound worse by applying a sharp and painful plaster to it, and thus to hurt the wounded instead of healing them. Therefore, he could not have found a sweeter or gentler word than this, I am astonished, by which he made clear both that it saddened him and that it displeased him that they were walking away from Christ. So Paul saves his fury for somebody else. He saves his fury instead for those who are troubling the Galatians, who are troubling the Galatians by distorting the good news of Christ. Now, this isn't the first run-in that Paul has had with these particular troublers. He recounts in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that these devious men came in, they spied on him, and they tried to end his ministry by creating a rift between him and the apostles. These same troublers, who he calls at the end of chapter 2 and verse 12, the circumcision party, were blasting the church in Jerusalem. And they were blasting the church in Jerusalem with such vitriol and opposition that out of fear of greater persecution for the church, both Peter and Barnabas withdrew from fellowshipping with the Gentiles in Antioch so that they didn't give these Jewish zealots more ammo. And having been unsuccessful in both of those attempts to derail Paul and to derail the gospel message, apparently now they have turned to discrediting him among the Galatians as a second-hander, as someone who simply got his gospel from the apostles, or chapter 1, verse 8, as a man-pleaser who is preaching the gospel of Christ in order to be approved by others. But as Pastor Kenny pointed out last week, in verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds the Galatians that he didn't get his message from anyone else. He got his message from the risen Christ. In fact, before Jesus knocked him off his feet on the road to Damascus, Paul was actually persecuting the apostles because of his opposition to the very gospel message that he now preaches. And in the last verse of our text this morning, Paul also reminds the Galatians that the preaching of the gospel is a heck of a way to try to please men. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. For now am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, Luke tells us in Acts 14 that when Paul first preached the gospel in the city of Iconium in Galatia, he and Barnabas had to flee because there was a plot by their opponents to stone them to death. And they fled to Lystra, where Jewish zealots not only succeeded in stoning Paul, they dragged him out of the city dead. 
In fact, the disciples stood around Paul, they gathered around Paul, and they prayed, asking God that he might live, and God raised him up. And amazingly, (laughs) Paul and Barnabas, the very next day, went on to preach the gospel in Derby. So Paul's accustomed to the fact that his message causes offense. He's not doing this for the praise of men. It would have been much easier for Paul to preach a different gospel. But there's not another one. And even these Galatians, even the folks that are troubling the Galatians, even these troublers in our text are offended by Paul's message. The gospel brings Paul opposition wherever he goes. And to say that it that he does it to win friends and influence people is simply beyond belief. If I were still pleasing man, Paul says, I would not continue to be a bondservant of Christ. And that's why in verses 7 through 9, Paul does not pull any punches. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. In verse 6, Paul says that the Galatians are being drawn away from the grace of Christ by a different gospel. And in verse 7, Paul says that this different gospel is not a gospel at all. In fact, it is an anti-gospel. So the troublers in Galatia preach fake news from perverted motives. They say that the death of Christ, that the death of Jesus for sin is not sufficient in itself. If the Galatians want to be approved by God, they have to keep the Mosaic law. In other words, if you're a Jewish, that means observing the purity laws of the Old Covenant. If you are a Gentile God-fearer, that means circumcision is a convert to Judaism. The only hope for salvation, they say, is by obedience to the law of Moses. And Paul sees this anti-gospel as a severe distortion in both obvious and subtle ways. The obvious way is that it denies that the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed anything. To them, the death of Jesus means nothing. The Mosaic law remains in place. Jesus' death is not enough to remove the requirement of obedience to the Mosaic law. That's what they're saying. Their anti-gospel says that salvation rests on Jesus' death plus faithful obedience to the law. Jesus plus circumcision for Gentile Christians. Jesus plus only eating clean animals and observing Levitical purity laws for Jewish Christians. This Jesus plus formula is the anti-gospel. It doesn't simply alter the good news. 
It destroys the good news. It moves the basis of our approval from the perfect righteousness of Christ to our obedience to the law. And if one thing is sure about our lives, we know that we can't keep God's law perfectly. If our approval before God rests on our obedience, then we are still under God's wrath. If our imperfect law-keeping wasn't addressed by Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, then there is nothing that can remove our guilt. This message that the troublers are preaching is anti-gospel. It is not good news. It is bad news. Jesus has delivered us from slavery to self. But these anti-gospelers would put us back under the bondage of our proud self-righteousness. And friends, this Jesus plus formula isn't something simply of the first century, right? It's everywhere. The prosperity gospel says to us that the reason that we're not wealthy is that we need to claim wealth in Jesus' name. We need Jesus plus extraordinary faith to prove to God that we are worthy of riches. You need Jesus The the reason your cancer has not been healed is that you've not shown enough faith. You need Jesus plus extraordinary faith to prove that you are worthy of his healing. The austerity gospel says that accepting Jesus plus committing to a life of poverty will prove to God that you are worthy of his love. The self-help gospel says that that if I have Jesus plus more spirituality and self-improvement, then I will be worthy of God's acceptance. But these are anti-gospels. By requiring something additional, they deny the sufficient grace of Christ. They bring their hearers into slavery. They bring their hearers into the slavery of self-made righteousness. That's why in chapter 5, Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. This persuasion is not from him who called you. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're living under any of these distorted anti-gospels, the Lord Jesus is calling you to freedom. See that he loves you apart from anything that you've ever done or anything that you could ever do. See that his love is so deep and so real and so full that he has done everything necessary for you to belong to him. See that he alone is your savior. Lay down any proud attempts to prove yourself to him and simply receive his grace. That is the gospel. There's only one formula that matters. Jesus 
plus nothing. His perfect obedience for our unrighteousness. His substitutionary death for the wrath that our sins deserved. His unalloyed approval for our crushing crushing shame. His grace for our sin. For grace, for by grace we are saved. Through faith, Paul proclaims. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. Not by works so that no man may boast. And not only does this anti-gospel of the Judaizers deny the sufficiency of Jesus and undermine the gospel, it subtly overturns the whole of the teaching of scriptures. Think carefully here with me. From beginning to end, the scriptures comprehensively reject our works as any part of the basis of our acceptance before God. Throughout all of redemptive history, from Genesis to John the Baptist, there has been one way to be approved by God, and that is by grace, through faith alone. So Paul is recognizing that this anti-gospel turns the whole of scriptures upside down. It denies the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement, and it reorganizes and recasts how we relate to God from beginning to end. And so Paul puts his finger on the troubler's perverted motive. Notice in verse 6, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Near the end of the letter, Paul sees right to the bottom of this motivation. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, it is these, the Judaizers, it is these who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, that they not be rebuked for crucifying Jesus. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Friends, the Judaizers don't care about the Galatians at all. They don't even care about law-keeping. They care about one thing. They want to win the Galatians to their side. Their motivation is really Jewish nationalism. If the Galatians care more about the global glory of Christ, they'll care less about the political power of national Israel, and that puts the Judaizers in a bad spot. The Judaizers fear that the Galatians' primary identity in Christ will lessen their concern about the ethnic distinctions that feed Jewish hatred of Roman rule. They don't care about good news. Ultimately, the Judaizers reject the gospel message for the same reason that many of us do today. We simply can't handle the free grace of God in Christ. We don't like to hear that God doesn't help those who help themselves. It threatens our pride. 
We don't like to hear that we are incapable of saving ourselves from sin. We don't like to hear that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We don't like to hear that to inherit an eternal life, we must simply receive it as a gift. We don't like to hear that God is God and that we are not. So we construct gospels that are not gospels at all. And that's what Paul refutes in verses 8 through 9. And he does so in the strongest terms. <coughs> As Luther says, Paul hits them with a clear text and a thunderbolt. Look at verses 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. With repetition for emphasis, Paul underscores that there is only one gospel. And this gospel is not from man. It is the story of redemption that is spelled out in the law and in the prophets and the writings. Paul and the apostles simply teach what the scriptures reveal about the promised Messiah. Their message is God's message. And any message that does not match up to the gospel is not from God. Luther, again, explains this so well, he's worth quoting at length. Paul subordinates himself. And try this again. <clears throat> Paul subordinates himself, an angel from heaven, teachers on earth, and any other masters at all to sacred scripture. This queen, the scriptures, this queen must rule, and everyone must obey and be subject to her. The Pope, Luther, Augustine, Paul, an angel from heaven, these should not be masters. Judges are arbiters, but only witnesses, disciples, confessors of Scripture. Nor should any doctrine be taught or heard in the church except the pure gospel of God. Otherwise, let the teachers and the hearers be accursed along with their false doctrine. Our message, friends, comes from Scripture alone, and that message is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There is no other gospel. And Paul's thunderbolt is this. If anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the apostolic message, that message does not come from God. It comes from the pit of hell. And not only are false gospels to be condemned, but so also are their preachers. The gravest possible consequences are reserved for those who lead people to any other so-called salvation. According to Paul, they are leading them into slavery and into death. 
So the way that we identify anti-gospels is by constantly rehearsing the good news. And this good news is the best news in all the world. Friends, now in Christ, you can find peace with God because Jesus has laid down his life for your sin. Jesus lived a life we couldn't live and died a death that we deserved so that through his substitutionary death, we might belong to God forever. We don't earn his righteousness by obedience to the law. We receive it by faith as a gift. For our sake, Paul says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So, to those who are here this morning and who've not trusted in Jesus, let me speak to you particularly for a moment. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, you have no idea what I've done, I've done unspeakable things. There's no way that God can accept me. Or I've, I've walked away. I've walked away from Christ and I'm too far gone. If that is you, friend, <clears throat> listen closely. The moment that we are at our worst, when we could not be more detestable, more distant, more dirty, more damnable, that is the very moment when Jesus' love is the greatest. It is the moment when his power to save is the strongest. The Lord Jesus himself says to you, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, you don't need to clean yourself up. If you are a sinner, you are qualified to find grace in Christ. All you need to do is go to him. Because as he says in John chapter 6, verse, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if that describes you this morning, friend, don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. But if you're here this morning and you're ambivalent about the gospel message, if you don't really care, let me speak to you. The righteousness of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. Every impediment to faith has been removed. Therefore, there is a binding moral obligation on all mankind to submit to Jesus' lordship. He is Lord. And so if you are stubborn, hard-hearted, if you are ambivalent, I plead with you, humble yourself. Humble yourself to own him as Savior by faith. 
Because those who foolishly reject him in rebellion will meet him as judge on the day of his return. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here this morning and you're a struggling sinner and you feel discouraged by your slow progress in the battle against sin, don't be tempted by the anti-gospel, the kind of gospel, the anti-gospel we heard this morning, to think that God's approval rests on your obedience. Remember that the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, is on your side. He has called you before the foundation of the earth to be his son or daughter. He loves you with an enduring, immeasurable love. And at the cross, he has secured you forever by the blood of Christ. His righteousness is yours. His victory over sin and death is yours. His sanctifying, comforting, empowering spirit is yours. Friend, remember that your adoption and justification are the cause, not the effect of your sanctification. Press on in putting sin to death, knowing that Christ Jesus Jesus has made you his own. And so as we come to the table, the table is for all (laughs) who sin and need mercy. For all of us who sin and need mercy, Jesus alone is enough. There is salvation in no other name. And that's what we remember when we come to the table. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God, in order that being put to death in the flesh, we might be made live in the Spirit. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what Paul tells us, that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of of his grace. And so this moment as we gather together is holy and it's sobering because it is only for those who have indeed trusted in Christ for righteousness. And so if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus this morning, you're invited to this table. But if you haven't, let the bread and the cup pass by. But don't let this moment pass. There is salvation in no other name. As the pastors come forward, just a a reminder. uh, The bread and the cup now are together. They're stacked on one another. The outer ring is grape juice. The inner rings are wine. His body is true bread. His blood is true drink. Let us serve you.